rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times, now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. Today, I'm joined by Julian Lawrence in the studio. Down the line, we have Matt Hughes and, making his seasonal debut, Matthew Syed. It's obviously a sober week. This week, we're going to be uh, talking about the aftermath of events in Paris Friday night, as well as a look at the Euro playoffs and uh, some of Arsene Wenger's comments on doping and, and drugs in football. But we need to start Friday night. Obviously, Julian, you're with us. You're from Paris, born and raised there. You've experienced this before, and I think you told me you, you know these places very, very well. Yeah, yeah, very, very well. Yeah, the birthday party I was supposed to go to on Friday night, uh, two roads down the, the Bataclan Music Hall, and me and my wife were invited. We decided I was off. I was not doing the game, the France game, so we decided to stay in London in the end, and the, the friends we've had at the party are all safe, thank God, but you, know, you just never know what can happen, and it's... You know, it's sad for everybody, but when it's your town and when it's the streets you, you grew up to, my grandparents used to live in the 11th arrondissement. And when it's your town and when it's the, the places you know, you drive past them regularly and you know that like your mum could have been there, your dad or your sisters or your cousins and everything, it's, it just makes it even harder, I think. And it was such a sad day. And and I think the tribute from, from England, from London, from everywhere in the world and f- for the rest of France, obviously, has been incredible. And I think, I've you know, talking... For France, if I can, I, I would say a big thank you to everybody. I'm sure there's there's more to come there. Side, I, I was struck by this because my initial reaction when, especially on Saturday, when when news broke in, in the Wall Street Journal that there were suicide bombers who were actually trying to get inside the stadium and and and, and set off uh, bombs inside the stadium, I sort of thought about the, the the targeting of sport, and I suppose indirectly. We've had this before, the, um, the the Boston Marathon, the Atlanta Olympics, uh, the Centennial Park bombing, and, and of course, I suppose, all the way back to the, the 1972 uh, Summer Olympics. But this felt a little bit different in the sense that it, it was so coordinated that, that, that there were so many people in one place. You, you can't help but feel that this was designed to be to be spectacular as well as uh, as, as horrific. It's not at all illogical, given their motives for terrorists to want to target sport. I mean, for a couple of reasons. One is sport is obviously very high profile, but the other is more to do with the fact that it's a lot of people, as you say, in a a relatively small amount of space. And given they want to maximise the number of body bags, the number of fatalities and the associated terror, um, I think it is very clear that they are going to target sport in the future, as they have done in the past. But I think this is going to be a, something that stays with sport. There's also, I think, a very powerful juxtaposition between sport as a 
relatively trivial but very uh, widely beloved diversion on the one hand and terror on the other, religious fanaticism. And I think that that is very striking as well. But I have no doubt that there will have to be a larger and more systematic apparatus of security at big sporting events, not just the, the, the stadiums, but also the fan parks and zones that are often alongside them. And they certainly will be at the European Championship next year. So this is a story that I think will run. But I also think it's absolutely vital that we don't allow it to change our way of life and our, and our love of sport. On that point, you mentioned the European Championships, and that's where, where, where the focus will be. But last Friday, there were, or, or over this past weekend, there were a bunch of games, European playoffs, and, uh, and and a couple high-profile friendlies. But maybe in total around Europe, we're talking about 250,000 people attending football matches. Come next weekend, when all the, the leagues start up again, after this international break, we're going to have, what, 5 million people attending games, attending club games all over Europe. At that point, just simply from a, from a security perspective, do we need to step up to those levels and have those levels of intelligence at, everywhere? Because if you're talking about large people in a camera, uh, large amounts of people in a camera, the number of potential targets simply, simply multiplies. Is that the wrong way to look at it? No, it's the right way to look at it. But th- but all of th- but think about the globally dispersed nature of aviation. The Chicago Convention governs the way that airports have to conduct their security. Of course, that's delivered by the national jurisdictions. But nevertheless, there is a globally uh, orchestrated system of security because airplanes are very useful targets for terrorists too. You bring down a lot of people in a split second and you can wreak damage on the ground as well. I mean, there are similar systems in sport, but I just think that we have to ratchet up the uh, security calculus a little bit more in the aftermath of what has happened. What would be... I mean, but the thing is, the the point you make statistically is even though this is a terrible set of events in Paris... It's roughly equivalent, you know, to the number of people who die in French hospitals because of avoidable mistakes. We tend not to notice the drip, drip of deaths of car accidents and things of that kind that, because it doesn't all happen at once in a single geographical location. I mean, terror tends to be proportionate to its drama. And I think we do have to bear in mind, as you say, that many millions of people watch football around the world. And even if there was an atrocity every year, the risk of going to a football match would be less. The risk of attending a football match and being afflicted by a terrorist attack would be less than the danger of dying in the journey towards the stadium. Husey, you were, uh, I presume you, you, you were in Alicante covering England. Can I ask you, what, when did you come across a story and I think, can you explain initially the, the suggestion that the friendly match uh, at Wembley between England and France would be, would be called off? Yeah, we were getting snippets of information during the game on, on Twitter and on the internet, but it didn't really sink in and the full horror of it wasn't clear until after the game. A few, a few of us spoke to um, some senior people at Live and they were expecting the game to be called off. Um, I think that conclusion was based on an, on an assumption rather than anything else. They hadn't actually spoken to their French counterparts at that stage. And when they did on, on Saturday morning, it was quite clear that the French Federation president wanted the game to carry on and the FA gave them uh, full support and matters quickly turned to um, how they could best demonstrate that support and, and pay respect tomorrow night, which is where we are at the moment. 
together with, with Julian, of course, you, you broke the story today in, in, in the times that some of the, the, the French players would rather not be playing. Do you personally think it, it's important to make a statement like this to go ahead and play or, you know, in the way that the, the, the French FA would like? Or are we kind of overblowing this a little bit? I think we do overblow it a little bit and I think it's a little bit easy for bystanders who, who weren't directly affected and involved to um, use words like defiance and solidarity. Um, and I don't feel able to make that statement and to say whether it's a good thing or a bad thing for the, this game to go ahead. I don't, I don't feel that that's my, my right. What I do feel is tremendous sympathy with the French players and for all the talk of defiance and solidarity and making a statement, defending our way of life, I think it's easy to forget that they're being asked to do a, a very difficult thing going out to um, continue their, their work. And I know if, if I'd been closely involved with this and if I'd lost someone, I would not be in a fit state of mind to con- continue working, never mind it's just a high-profile environment. Julian, I'm assuming it was left up to the players whether they want to whether they want to play. And I think this surely that would be the right thing to do, and this applies both to France and to England. Yeah, the, the thing is, the, the, the head of French FA took the decision on his own without consulting Didier Deschamps, without consulting the players, and, and decided that the game was going to go ahead. Noel. Noel Legrette, yeah, Christmas, Christmas Legrette. And, you know, he went, he, went to the, he went back to the English FA saying, yeah, yeah, the game is on. And only after that, he told Didier Deschamps the game is on, who then Didier Deschamps had to tell his own players... You know, some of them, Antoine Griezmann, his sister was at the Bataclan. She escaped somehow. You know, she cheated death and she escaped unhurt, which is incredible. Lassana Diara lost his cousin who's having a drink on a Paris terrace. And then you go and tell those players, well, Tuesday, we're not going to ask you how you feel. We're not going to ask you if you feel like playing. We're not going to ask you, you know, if you want a couple of days off with your family to just... I don't know, to, to grief and to pay tribute or whatever. You said, you're going to take the plane on Monday morning, get to London, you know, go through the most emotional Marseillaise you've ever experienced before. And no one in the country probably has ever experienced that kind of level of emotion. And then you're going to try to play 90 minutes. I know it's a friendly. I, th- I just think it was really unfair on the players and, and, and a bit disrespectful. Matthew, Julian mentioned the Marseillaise. There's been talk that, that on, on, on Tuesday night, both sets of players and maybe the fans, something's planned. They want everybody to sing it. The risk of going out on a limb a little bit. The whole issue of singing the Marseillaise for the French players, especially you know, some of them who, who might be second generation French, is an extremely loaded issue uh, in the sense that there's some players who've been criticized in the past for not singing it. Mm. Are we kind of sort of doubly putting them in a bad position, A, by making them play, and B, basically expecting them to sing because we've made such a big deal out of the anthem in this specific in, in, in a specific situation? Well, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, I think it's great that the match is going ahead. I mean, if a particular player feels that they don't want to play, then, of course, that is absolutely their right. Um, but I think it would have been disastrous to, to call it off, not symbolically, but for all sorts of other reasons. We don't want to change our way of life because of what happened. In terms of the national anthem, yeah, I, I agree to a point. It, no one should be forced to sing the national anthem or, for that matter, to wear a poppy or do anything else. But I do think singing the anthem and showing solidarity from the English fans will be very, very powerful. You know, I was thinking of that scene in Casablanca where they sing the Marseillaise and this is an aesthetic point really more than anything else but it's I think the most rousing of the national anthems and I think it will be quite a quite a scene and a very powerful one 
Julian, can you just actually? I maybe I'm kind of assuming that people are familiar with. Tell me to sing it. No, no, no. You don't need to sing it, but you can. Can you explain a little bit about the anthem and about the relationship that some of these players have and have had in the past? I don't. Obviously, Benzema's not in the squad. He's got other issues. But is there anybody there who, in the past, maybe hasn't in in the current squad who hasn't sung the anthem or or who's been uncomfortable with it? Yeah, I I don't think he's he's much uncomfortable with. You know, with the song itself, or what it means, or what it represents. I, th- I think some players. I don't know how Matthew was when he was, you know, playing, playing. But it's some some focus and concentrate on the game, and they don't, you know, their concentration is to stay quiet. You know, to listen to the, to the anthem, and to you know, to get that the vibe in, to to then get ready for for kickoff. Some sing it loud, some sing it not loud, some just. You know, whisper the words. I, I think everybody's free to do what they want in the anthem. I'm not one to say like everybody should, you know, scream the anthem down and everything. I think it's up to anyone. I, I've never heard a player saying that he was not singing it because France was not his country or that he didn't believe that the message of the Marseillaise was the right one. You know, it is a message of battle. You know, that's what that's what the words say. It is a message of battle. But I, I've never heard the only the only players I've spoken about it with I was saying like my way of concentrating is is just not singing the anthem you know the I guess everybody's different really Hughie going on to you obviously England did play uh, a friendly on on, on Friday uh, it was against Spain and England lost given events I think a lot of people just really didn't particularly care and some of us didn't care particularly going into it but what did we learn here, uh, other than the the fact that maybe this defensive partnership is actually pretty good. Yeah, I think there were a few positives in defeat. We learned that Smalling and Jones can play well together against decent opposition, and they kept Costa in particular pretty quiet. I thought, and Spain didn't score, so he'd, he'd gone off. Beyond that, there wasn't much else to cheer. I thought Bosbach's performance was slightly disappointing, slightly fitful, started well, made some good decisions, but then faded and in the second half contributed very little. Why don't Jones and Smalling play together at club level if they're so good together? It's a very good question. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, the statistic is they've took started eight or nine games together in, what, three years? Um, I was actually surprised and so disappointed Phil Jones was playing because I wanted to see um, John Stones play against like Smalling, whereas Hodgson's going to play Stones and Cale tomorrow, it seems, which seemed a bit perverse, I think, long-term going forward. Stones and Smalling is the um, is the partnership with the most potential, and they're the two classiest defenders I think we've got coming through. But Jones did actually do um, do pretty well. Syed, I, I want to just ask you about this about the sort of the, the whole notion of, of of partnerships, especially you know centre backs. We we often see on television people talk about how you know they need to know each other and, and there's chemistry and and whatnot. Do we overvalue that? A little bit, uh, in the sense, especially with with these two guys, who for whatever reason, as as Husey said, the, the United manager prefers not to play them together. Um, also, to be fair, one of them just keeps getting injured all the time. But is that something that that matters, or we just kind of exaggerate because it makes us feel clever? This is, I think, it's a really interesting, a really interesting question, not just in sport but but beyond, because. In real time, footballers, their skill has to be complementary. If a player passes to another player, but the other player hasn't anticipated that pass and moved into the relevant piece of space, 
then that pass, however well it's delivered and how accurate and with the right amount of spin, means absolutely nothing. And so the coordination of actions, I mean, it's very important in operating theatres between a pilot and a co-pilot in a plane, between troops on the ground in, in a theatre of war. But in football, it's, it's particularly manifest because it has to be absolutely pinpoint and in hockey and in other team sports of that kind. And so the concept of, which is often used by psychologists is something called a shared mental model. In other words, everybody, to use the old cliche, is singing from the same hymn sheet. They have the same tactical plan, but they're also able to coordinate actions in terms of positioning and passing and all these other things that are so important in competitive football. And it seems to me obvious, but it's also backed up by the literature, that people who play together a lot are better at picking up on the relevant signals. Julian, uh, there's another United player who's, who's been called up for this game against France, and we make a big deal out of it, Creeper. Like, look, he's only played 193 minutes, but in fact, I think Jesse Lingard maybe is a slightly different situation because obviously I think he would have played a lot more last season had he not suffered that, that injury. I want to just get your thought on Lingard a little bit because... He's been playing ahead of ahead of Depay lately. I, I think he's a better fit than Depay. He's he's played well, but at the same time, I think the other week Van Hal came out and said he's not particularly fast. It's true, maybe, but it's one thing to say that of Juan Mata, who's you know uh, who's an established superstar. Quite a different one if you say it about a, a young kid like this. How do you see him? Yeah, I was surprised by by Van Hal. You know my love for Van Hal anyway, but I was surprised by his his public criticism for for a player who bailed you out in the Champions League with assist for Ren Rooney and then scored the goal as well in the league after very very you know very boring performance. I thought, but I was a bit surprised. I think he's got talent. I do understand why some people think it's a bit early for him to be called to the English setup. Doesn't mean that he's going to go to the Euros or he's going to have you know. It means that he comes as well to learn, to see how things work, to to try, you know, to, to be part of training with with the other players, to, to be there, have a chat with Hudson and, and Gary Neville or people like that. And, and I think that can only be beneficial. That, you know, it doesn't mean it's not an outrage that he's been called up, even after only 193 minutes in the Premier League. I, I think he's, he's good. Maybe he shows there's not much depth into, you know, the England squad of players that Roy can pick from which that's another matter but I think from what we've seen recently from Lingard I think he deserves it Husey what's your take on Lingard and also somebody told me somebody in football said he's being called up basically because he plays for Manchester United and that if he played for West Brom or or Bournemouth he would not be in the England team right now is, is that a bit unfair it's a bit unfair I think there's an element of truth in that it's not down to um, deliberate bias or preferential treatment it's just probably the simple fact that if you play well for Manchester United and make an impact, it's going to um, resonate far more and be far more noticeable than if you do so for, for Bournemouth or even West Ham. I think it's an interesting and a good selection. But I think today's where you had to sort of earn inverted commas, your international caps are gone because we just don't have enough players to expect to even make them serve long apprenticeships. And I think Hodgson's been quite pragmatic in picking players who are in form. We're right in the middle of the uh, of the playoffs for the for the European Championships. It's a bit unusual or it's a bit inconvenient to talk about them, I guess, because uh, some of you by the time you hear this, the Republic of Ireland will have played uh, Bosnia because that game takes place Monday night. We know Hungary have already qualified. Personally, given that it's been so many years and some of us grew up with uh, with grandparents talking about the legend of the great Hungarian team. I, I'm kind of psyched that they're back at the competition, even though they're obviously not very good. But 
I want to talk about uh, the, the Republic of Ireland and Bosnia because, Julian, this seems to me like a, a clash between a team that's not necessarily particularly talented. Tony Cascarino makes a point in our paper that, you know, they're nowhere near as talented as, as, as the big jack sides. Taking on a team that, that is very talented <laughs> in, in Bosnia. But we're talking about two small nations duking it out. I kind of like, as a neutral, I kind of like this. I, I watched the first leg, this crazy fog came you tried, in. Yeah, you tried to watch it. I tried it. to watch it, yeah. <laughs> I kind of expect fireworks in the, in the return leg. I know, I think it's going to be good. I really do. And I agree. And, and I, think, I think that's what football is about. Two different styles and two different philosophies, two different set of players. And, and battling out and we see the more sort of defensive minded in a way or the maybe less talented as you, as you put it. Team... Well, they, to be fair to the Republic of Ireland, they also had some important absentees like yeah. John O'Shea and John Walters, who I think will be back uh, um, this evening. And of course, Shane Long as well. And they're not, you know, they're not a bad team. They, they'd be obviously... Germany very recently not well lately everybody beats Germany but you know so they're, they're not a bad team it's just interesting to see the two different styles the two different way of playing and you know for people who love football I think anytime you can watch people like Miralem Pjanic for example I think you should just tune in and, and everything I, I think it's going to be a great tactical battle as well and I, I guess made the, be, made, made, you know, made the better team wins but I think I think it's going to be very good Syed when they expanded the Euros to, to, to 24 teams, I was quite vocal. I thought it was great. I thought it was fantastic. I thought we would get to see more good players at the Euros, and it means more bad teams. And we also had people sniffly talking about, oh, but they're diluting the quality. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, you know what? If you just want to keep the quality, just invite Germany, Spain, and France, because the winner will probably be one of those three teams. But... What's your take on this? I mean, for countries like Bosnia and Ireland, countries who, let's face it, probably don't have too much to cheer sporting-wise, this is really big, and we'll get to see some outstanding players. I mean, Miralem Pjanic could probably walk into just about any team in, in, uh, in, at the Euros. Difficult, I think. I mean, it's an obvious point to make, but it's a balance. I, I'm very struck by some of the big sporting events that seem to go on forever, and the... the clear commercial imperative of having as many possible matches over the course of the month or month and a half uh, to maximize the tv rights and commercial revenues whilst effectively undermining the value of the event itself in this case i think i'll probably just about side with you but presumably you would agree that if it went up to 30 or 36 or 40 teams it would be too much yeah i mean i think it would become it would become large and unwieldy. But I think what we see, though, is that, you know, the gap between, let's say, the, the, the 10th best team uh, out of the, the, the 16 who would have qualified before and the 20th best team really isn't that big. We, we see it time and again. There's very few blowouts in, in international football. Yes, and I think that trend will continue. I mean, the narrowing of standard between different... I mean, basically, we're talking about the tale of the distribution, aren't we? And I think you're absolutely right, is that as sport becomes more competitive, as the uh, methods of coaching sport become more widely dispersed, 
the difference between the best and the not so good will will narrow. I think that's right. There's, I mean, you mentioned it's fascinating tale because you you mentioned training techniques and and, and whatnot. I mean, obviously, I mean, you've written about nature versus nurture in the past. You're, I think, it's fair to say you're more in the nurture camp than uh, than I am. But surely you would recognize that having a large population pool, as well as all things being equal, would help you. And every time that we're reminded that. You know, Germany have maybe 20 times the population, 15 times the population of the Republic of Ireland, but they're not better than the Republic of Ireland by a factor of 15 or 20. Can, can, you, can you explain that side? Yeah, so, so obviously I, I, I agree that if you have a bigger number of people to potentially draw upon, then all things being equal, that will lead to better outcomes because you're likely to be able to recruit more talented people. But the thing that we neglect, I think, is that all things are not equal. And that the other factors that drive success, which are complex and tightly interconnected, are often underestimated by those who think about success almost exclusively through the prism of talent. So if you think about Brazil in the 1970s, the dominant team, but largely because they had the best coaching, big population too, to be sure. But that has transferred to, for example, Spain over the last decade and a half. That isn't isn't because Spain have evolved more efficient football playing genes, but because... They've had the most effective coaching. And if you look but, at human... But Matthew, sorry, if we can just turn it back to, to to the example at hand, Germany and Ireland. Germany's basically better at Ireland. Not only do they have a bigger population, but they're better at everything. They have more of a footballing tradition. They've got better coaching. They're, they're, they're state of the art. They have many, many more people. They're wealthier. I mean, other than music and, 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 and beer, there's not many things that the Irish... And Catholicism, there's not many things that the Irish do better than the Germans. Well... That's a curious claim to make. I mean, it, it, there's a, probably thousands of things that the Irish do considerably better than the Germans, one of which is to speak the Irish language. And that's basically a function of the culture. I mean, there are extraordinary geographical concentrations of success in the world. Spartak Moscow Tennis Club produced more top 20 female tennis players in the whole of the United States. And the, the Korean golfers as well. No, but I, I'm talking... Korean, uh, just think about I mean, just wind it from sport for a second. Look at the history of the world. Look at the scientific revolution. That wasn't because humanity became more intelligent. There wasn't a mutation that increased the size of the brain. It was because we got a culture and a scientific method that worked. And you're absolutely right. Talent is not irrelevant. The statistical significance of a bigger population isn't irrelevant. But what is what seems to me very clear is that the preoccupation with talent um, of coaches, of leaders, and all sorts of institutions actually undermines the capacity of those institutions to reach their potential. It's a it's a balance for sure but great football clubs the same as great technology companies are capable of unleashing talent by focusing on the other factors that lead to success moving on to our debate this week which is pretty much connected with with one of the last things uh, you, you talked about there matthew side arsene wenger well let's start at the beginning we've had this business with the um iaaf obviously they're the eye of the storm russia has been suspended Kenya could be next. There's a whole range of, of accusations, systematic doping. I think also corruption really on the part of the testers, which is one of the big things. Husey, Arsene Wenger came out and he, he basically says that, you know, I think the exact quotes, he never gave an injection to, to improve performance, although he did give creatine, but, you know, that's a whole other story. And, and now the FA have asked, and, and, but he said that, no, not everybody played by the same rules. The FA have asked them to come out and explain his comments. The way I read it is 
he's talking about stuff that happened in the 1990s early in his career. He's not talking about the presence. Do you have any re reason to believe he's talking about the here and now? Well, he probably is to an extent, just simply because Arsenal played against the Dynamo Zagreb team earlier this year and one of their players failed a drug test after the game and the result was allowed to stand, which I know Arsene Menger found very frustrating and uh, unfair, not least that Arsenal lost that game and that's left them on the brink of Champions League elimination throughout the campaign. But the problem with Arsene Wenger is we just don't know and he won't say. He's made these sort of cryptic comments in the past. We kind of thought that he was referring to um, his time his time in France, um, his long struggles with Bernard Tapie's Marseille, sort of well-known, and whether there was a, a doping element to that, we don't know. The, the bottom line is football and drugs. There must be some drug-taking football, but we don't know the extent of it. I think Wenger's, the point he makes best is sort of the inadequacy of the, of the testing system. You, they test two players for games, but in terms of out-of-competition testing, it's pretty much non-existent as far as I'm aware. I just wish Arsene Daniel would actually say what he, what, he, what he really felt. Maybe in the privacy of talking to the FA, he will. I doubt, I doubt it. Yeah, Hughesy, I'm not, I'm not sure that, that that's, that's correct. I think it's that the, they test in competition two players, but certainly the individual FAs also conduct surprise tests where they just kind of show up at training grounds you know we can debate whether it could be better or not and and, and certainly there are biological passports being introduced as well but I mean, you obviously know Wenger better than I do. Maybe we just assume that you do because you're both French. He's done this time and again. He alludes to it. And again, I always assume that that's what he's talking about, or maybe he's talking about Juventus in the 90s. Is there any reason to think that, other than this Dinamo Zagreb chap, that he's talking about systemic doping or drug use from Arsenal's real competitors, who obviously aren't Dinamo Zagreb, but... Yeah you know, uh, other big European clubs? I don't think so. Not, not that I've heard or not that he ever mentioned to me or anything. I think, like like Yuzi said, he, I think, you know, he's he's not so sure about the Marseille of Bernard Tapie early 90s in France when he was at Monaco and, and there was a lot of dodgy thing going on at the time. I think he probably refers more to that. I think he might refer a bit in some Italian clubs at the time as well where there's been allegations of maybe... Well, uh, there have been positive drugs. Yeah, yes. yeah. A, a, a Juventus, a, a Lazio, the Dutch national team. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, this, and it's not just in Italy or in France. I think, And I think Yuzi made a very good point. That why football would be exempt from, from doping? I don't know. It's, it's, well, it's clearly I'll, in a lot of sports and I, I would be surprised, like we saw with the Namus Agreb, I would be surprised if if it was not in football. Matthew, you were you were at the Olympics. I'm assuming that you were tested yourself. I'm assuming in your sport, maybe it's beta blockers or, or something that uh, that they're looking for. But you've, <laughs> you've spent time with with Team Sky and cycling, so presumably you know about, about doping. I'm not suggesting that they're doping, obviously, but you, you've been in those environments. Did you think it's inevitable that there's wide-ranging wide doping going on in football? It's not inevitable, but it's interesting the different ways that drugs can help depending on the sport. You mentioned cycling. I mean, in cycling, endurance is just the quality that is being tested at the Tour de France. So if you have more red blood cells, it just directly translates into performance. And you hear of cyclists who have been taking drugs who just see it 
immediately, instantly. Um, and the same for strength sports. You know, you take steroids and you get the uh, muscle fibres and, and suddenly you're able to lift more. In football, it's different. I mean, stamina helps for sure and speed helps. Both of these things are factors. But the, the biggest factor determining success in football is, you know, perceptual awareness, skill on the ball, being able to pass. These things are not instantly affected by drugs. It may help you to practice longer, which will build up the relevant software that enables you to play better. But the relationship between taking drugs and performance is much more complex than football. So even though I think that there is an incentive to do it for obvious reasons, uh, the incentive is lower. I'm not diminishing it in any way, but it is a very different incentive structure in cycling and weightlifting and these sort of unidimensional sports, which is why... It is such a magnet for the riders and their coaches. I'm not saying it isn't a magnet in football, but it's just a different kind of magnet. I'm pretty convinced that there isn't a big performance-enhancing problem in football right now. And I spent quite a bit of time on this. Probably there was up until 2004, 2005. And, but, and, and I'll explain why, and you guys can, can, tell me, can tell me why I'm wrong. Well, the first reason I, I agree with, with what, what Syed said is that the marginal benefits of it are are much more limited. Uh, if you think broadly speaking about the fact that there's three ways of doping, you can dope blood and try basically to generate more red blood cells, whether it's EPO or whatever. Uh, one of the problems with doing that in football, and it is what they did in football, by the way, is that players are, are now cross-checked. So in other words, you have to keep such records of, of the players. And if you're a player, say, with Manchester United, and then you go off and you go play for, for Holland, you would need coordination between the two, or otherwise the Dutch FA would be like, oh, look, Dali, you know, your, 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 your um, hemoglobin's gone up to whatever. And it would be much, much more difficult to do that way, that there's simply so that's much more baseline okay. testing. Just to interrupt at that point, I mean, I think that's pretty naive. I mean, remember that even with the biological passport and the assessment of the what's called the off score, which measures the ratio between hemoglobin and other related blood products, it's still very easy to microdose and beat that system. So I would, I would just caution against the idea that because a player's playing in London and then goes and plays in Holland, that somehow sophisticated microdosing is going to be picked up. I mean, that, that just clearly isn't the case. I'm not sure that's that's accurate, actually, and especially in the terms of the benefits of, of microdosing, because if, if you look at the extent to which, I mean, this goes back to, to Hamilton's book and whatever, I mean, you can look at the extent to which, they call it microdosing, but if you look at the level of, of testing that's, that's required, and presumably, if you are going to, to microdose, you would need to keep very, very accurate records of, of the microdosing. I just think the amount of people involved and the fact that it's not a uh, that it's not a team sport and the cross checks would would make that slightly unlikely. But maybe but there are about, maybe there are newer ways the, of doing it. Think about the journalist on Panorama. I mean, it, it was it was very it was not difficult to beat the biological passport with microdosing. The, the effect wasn't as big as if you were macrodosing, but it was still highly significant. I mean, I wouldn't underestimate the extent to which in this arms race between the testers and the dopers. The dopers are nevertheless staying ahead of the game, even with biological passports. Okay, enough drugs. How about some quick hits instead? Ollie Kay sat down with Cesc Fabregas. Well, as I discovered, not just Ollie, a whole bunch of, uh, of, of journalists did. But the point is, Cesc came out and told them that Chelsea's poor form keeps them awake at night. 
And he also said that results are worse than performances. Matt, A, are you surprised that Cesc Fabregas is an insomniac because of Chelsea's poor results? And B, is it true that Chelsea have played better than their league position? Uh, I think they've played slightly better than 16th, but and they have had some misfortune with refereeing decisions and not scoring goals that maybe their um, pressure merited, but that doesn't account for their huge slump from runaway champions to um, relegation candidates. So for Cesc to sort of use misfortune as an excuse doesn't, doesn't really wash. Of course, he probably kept up at night by the by the campaign against Chelsea. Slatan Ibrahimovic's Sweden take on Denmark on Tuesday. Julian, am I right in thinking you want Sweden to win just so we can uh, see Slatan at one major at a major tournament one last time before he disappears into the Swedish steppe and goes hunting moose? You are very very right. We want to see him, especially in France. You know, he's, like he said recently, he put France on the map. No one knew before him where France was. and Especially when it comes thanks, to football. Exactly. Thanks to Zlatan, uh, France is on the football map now. So thank you, Zlatan. We can't wait to see you at the Euros. And then even maybe that at the Olympics. I think that's, that's the idea, doing the Euros and then the Olympics to finish his international career. What I'd like to see is maybe after, he, uh, after the Euros, after he retires, is maybe him to, taking over from uh, Noël Legrette. Oh, yeah. At, at the French FA. Yeah. Cristiano Ronaldo, who I believe you, you, you interviewed recently and spent some time with, Matthew, he went on Jonathan Ross and he said that he plans to retire uh, with dignity and then proceeded to rule out playing in the US, Qatar or Dubai, as a lot of uh, former high-profile players have done. Matthew, I, I got the sense from when I read your story that you know you quite liked him, but I know a lot of people don't like him. And, and I wonder, does he, is he not that likable because he makes these little gratuitous pops sometimes? Uh, he was hugely likable. I, I went in hoping to sort of send him up when I wrote up the interview, but he was he was knowing. He was remarkable in his work ethic and his desire and his ambition, perhaps as you would expect. I think people don't like that sense of narcissism, self-regarding uh, ego. But to be honest, I think he deserves it. I think he's one of the greats, one of the greats. Even though he disses MLS and Qatar, meh. I, I think there's no question, though. His, his role place in the game is, is secure. Paul Lambert is back in a job, having taken over at Blackburn uh, Rovers. Uh, Hughesy, is this the right place for somebody who Rory K. Smith once described as a better coach than Brendan Rodgers? Should he maybe have waited for something better to come along, maybe in the Premier League? I don't think Blackburn is the right place for anyone at the minute. They've had five <laughs> managers in, in three years since they got relegated. The, own, the owners are um, eccentric, to say the least, and there's very little evidence to say that he can turn things around. Having said that, given how poorly he managed at Villa for, for three years, there weren't Premier League clubs queuing up to offer him work, so I can understand why he's, he's jumped straight back in. Wow, i surprised you're so down on, 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 on Lambert. I mean... I- He's not the most pleasant. He doesn't come across as the most cheery guy, but I thought he did all right at the beginning anyway. <laughs> Raul played his final game as a professional, winning the North American Soccer League title with the New York Cosmos. Julian, it's a fitting end to a stellar career. Can you sum him up in 20, 25 seconds, Max, uh, for younger listeners who may be unfamiliar with the great man? Wonderful player, great left foot, great finisher. Most of his career at Real Madrid, with whom he won everything, although... He started at Atletico Madrid as a kid, which is quite surprising. But I think he played over 800 games for Real Madrid, scored 350 goals or, or just around that. Just great player, but a great man as well. Great family man, great spirit, great, great player overall. 
funnily enough, he was dropped from Spain just before they got really, really good. Yeah, uh, so he's never won anything in Spain. Yeah. Which is kind of annoying. Paul Scholes had another pop at Louis van Gaal. He said, and I quote Scholesy here, Manchester United don't need a philosophy. The fans want to see attacking football and goals. That's the Manchester United way. Syed, can you help me understand what he means? Is there a substantive difference between a philosophy, which, as I take it, is bad and foreign and weird, and a way, which I guess is good? <laughs> hey, what uh, the hell is he talking about? That's a good question. I can't personally see much of a difference. Uh, there's no doubt, though, I think, that Manchester United fans like to see attacking football and... I love the way they shout, attack, attack, attack. I, um, and I think Skulls is trying to reflect that, but quite how he's managed to find a semantic difference between a way and a philosophy is is not clear. You, you, you've got to ask him. I wonder what Salford City... Whether, you think Salford City is a philosophy, Julian? <laughs> They've got a way, for sure. Clearly, they have a way, yeah. A way. And they have a limb as well. <laughs> Gab, one for you. Argentina drew a home with Brazil one all in the South American qualifiers. They're ninth and haven't won in their first three games. No team has failed to win any of the opening three games and gone on to qualify for the World Cup. What's the problem? Well, I think there's a bunch of things. I think right now they're, they're, they're pretty much playing with fear uh, against a not very good Brazil team, which had, uh, who had Ricardo Oliveira, who I believe is older than you, Julian, yes, uh, starting up front. Um, they took the lead. They should have added to it. And then Brazil scores. And then all of a sudden they kind of freak out and freeze and it ends up in a draw. I think they'll be fine. This team is absurdly talented. Of course, right now they don't have Tevez, Aguero, Messi, but you know all they have up front is Lavezzi, uh, Higuain, and Di Maria, which is still pretty good. They'll still qualify because you know South America gets to send four and a half teams to the World Cup. However, I don't think Tata Martino is going to the World Cup. I, I don't think it's acceptable, and they got a really tough game coming up uh, against uh, Colombia away in Barranquilla, which given to the vagaries of South American uh, qualifying, it's going to be hot, humid, steamy, and yucky. Whereas uh, when they played uh, at home against against Brazil, uh, they were basically playing in, uh, in with, with clouds and thunderstorms. It was like playing in England. So, uh, uh, so yes, yeah, so Argentina will be okay, but Tata Martino, out. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to my guest today who made the effort on... Uh, on, on but it's generally a pretty crappy Monday after a crappy weekend. Uh, Julian Lawrence in the studio, Matthew Syed, and, uh, and, and, and Matt Hughes down the line. You can uh, subscribe to us. Uh, all you need to do is press that subscribe button. We're going to be back uh, next week. Uh, remember, you can get exclusive football, rugby, and cricket highlights free as part of your subscription. Just £12 for a 12-week trial. You can just go and search The Times online. Till next week. Bye-bye. Oh, and by the way, since people are asking and fearing, I have to break you the bad news. Rory K. Smith could be on his way back on the podcast real soon. But that is not a reason not to listen. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. You're away.